take your Bibles and open them to Luke chapter 1. Back to the Gospel of Luke. While you're turning there, I'll say that it has been my prayer this week that, um, again, we may be able to behold God out of this passage. Um, Today, I hope that's been your prayer as well, that we would uh, be obedient and faithful to Scripture and what it calls us to. Uh, That's certainly been my hope, my prayer, and and my desire uh, as your pastor and just as a follower of Christ that what we look at today would be true of us as a church uh, completely, wholeheartedly, 100%. Uh, we've spent about two months now in the first half of chapter 1, and I have fallen in love with it. Uh, it's rich. There's a lot that we've looked at. Spending all this time in the two infancy narratives as uh, God sends His angel Gabriel to announce the birth of John the Baptist. We looked at uh, how God interacts with His servants, particularly Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, how He chooses them, prepares them, and uses them Uh, for the great privilege of raising the forerunner to the Messiah, John the Baptist. We looked at the angel's description of John the Baptist, what it means to be great before the Lord. That's the only kind of greatness that matters, that we can forget worldly greatness, but being great before the Lord is something of significance. And We looked at what it means to be great before the Lord, how we can uh, become that ourselves. We've looked at Mary, and we've talked about the angel visiting Mary, and we looked at her example of faith, of submitting to God in faith, that although she didn't know how things were going to be brought about, how they would happen, or what the future may hold, she wholeheartedly said, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to His Word, according to His will, according to what He desires. We've looked at Gabriel describing the child that's going to be born, our blessed Lord Jesus, that He is the Holy Son of the Most High. We looked at verses 39-45. through God encouraging Mary through her visit with Elizabeth. Remember, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Mary has traveled to see her. And God uses that feeling of the Holy Spirit through uh, through Elizabeth to confirm to Mary her calling, to reassure her of what God is doing in her life. Mary's about to face some difficulties. She's about to be hard-pressed in some ways. This pregnancy is not going to be easy. Not only will she be labeled immoral, but one day, She'll identify with every ridicule that her son receives, every mocking gesture she'll take personally, and ultimately when she sees him hanging on the cross, it will not be easy for Mary. God is using Elizabeth in that passage to confirm her so that there's no doubt, there's no fear. He reminds her through Elizabeth that, Mary, you're blessed. You're a blessed woman, not by any virtue in you, but because of the child in your womb, you're blessed. God's doing a work in you. So, when things get difficult, remember your blessing from God. Elizabeth remind her, reminded her of the child in her womb. Remember who you're giving birth to. The Messiah is coming into the world. Don't fret. Don't fear. Don't be discouraged. The Messiah is going to be here. And then the last thing Elizabeth encouraged her with um, was to remember the faith that you've had. Your faith isn't incurring more blessings on you. It's allowing you to enjoy God's work in your life. Enjoy these blessings. So when times get tough, Mary, remember your faith. And have more faith. Remember these blessings and enjoy these blessings. So thus far, we have seen in Mary's life particularly a wonderful model example of what it means to have faith in God. What it means to continue in faith to God. Today, as we turn our attention to verse 46 this morning, we'll see that Mary is now a model example of a worshiper. In 
verses 46 through 55, Mary lays out, writes this beautiful hymn of praise, what we've been singing the last couple of weeks, writes this beautiful song of worship, and she lays before us what it means to genuinely worship God. And I would ask you this question at the beginning here. What is worship? And you may be surprised to find out in your mind that you're hard pressed to find a definition of worship. That it's actually not very easy to define what worship is. Probably for a couple of reasons. One, because you've never thought about it. You may have never seen the importance in it, the privilege in it, the significance in it. And so you've never really put much time in thinking about it, what it is, what it means, what is right and what is wrong in worship. Or maybe you are experiencing great confusion over the definition of worship because there are literally tons and tons and tons of different opinions and views about worship. And as a result, most of us do not know what biblical worship really is. Before you check out, I would say it is the highest privilege of the church to worship. Yet, too many of us have no idea what it really is. And I must say to you that there is a wrong way to worship. Contrary to what liberal Christianity wants to think and wants to say, there is actually a wrong way to worship God. And many, many people are worshiping wrongly. We can turn to Scripture for examples of wrong worship. We can talk about Leviticus chapter 10. Some of you know that story of Nadab and Abihu, uh, Aaron's two sons who are consecrated as priests. They have every right to be doing what the priests are supposed to do. Every right to be in the place that they're at doing what they're doing. But they decide and take it upon themselves to do what we could call experimental worship. They offer strange fire on the altar of God. And you know what happens? In that moment, God consumes them with fire and kills them. And we ask, why? They're priests. They're consecrated as priests. They're supposed to be doing the duties of priests. They do one thing different in their worship of God. They offer unauthorized fire and God kills them for it. And the answer is because God gave very specific instructions on how to be, He was to be worshipped. And they went outside those boundaries, outside of those instructions. They worshipped wrongly. You can look at John chapter 4. Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. And Jesus is trying to evangelize to her. She tries to change the subject to a debate about worship between Jews and Samaritans and a debate about location of worship. And Jesus says, look, it's not a matter of location. And he actually says the Father is seeking true worshipers. You know what that implies? There are false worshipers. People who get it wrong. And if it is the highest priority of the church, don't we want to know exactly what it means to worship God? We can talk about Amos chapter 5. I want to read that passage to you. God is actually speaking in the minor prophet at Amos chapter 5. And in verse 21, he's speaking about their worship. And God says, I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. 
you have God Himself looking at the Israelite people and He's saying, your solemn assemblies, when you come together to worship, I take no delight in them. When you sing your songs of praise, they're noise to me. I have no pleasure when you make music. That's significant. Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing as believers, worshiping God? Isn't that the pinnacle of our faith? And these people are getting it wrong. Dab and Abihu are killed. Jesus implies that there are false worshipers. God looks at Israel and says, I hate your solemn assemblies. I despise it when you come together to worship me. Man, if that's true, we so desperately want to know what it means to be right, true worshipers of God, right? Man, wholeheartedly, we want to know what it means to worship God as He would be worshipped. Because that's the error in all of these examples. That's what a false worshiper is. People who worship God as they want to worship Him and not as He would be worshipped. We have to worship God as He wants to be worshipped. Not as we think best. So in light of the fact that there is false, wrong worship, we want to go back to the question, what is worship? And we want to begin to dissect it and look at it. And Mary's going to lay out this beautiful example for us of what worship really is. First, let me start off by saying, worship is the chief objective of the church. It is the highest privilege and the highest honor for us Christians, the body of Christ, when we gather together to focus our hearts and minds on God and lift Him up in worship. There is nothing better than that for us. Let me say there should be nothing better than that for us. Because our worship of God is the culmination of our faith, isn't it? Everything we believe about God converges when we worship Him. Our faith on God, in God, our dependence upon God, our knowledge of God, our relating to the person of God, our reverence for God, our enjoyment for God, all of these things. We desire God to be glorified when, we're, when we worship Him. We desire people to be saved when we worship Him. Everything about our Christianity culminates when we gather together and worship Him as Christians. So it is the chief objective of the church, the culmination of our faith. It is why we gather together. Worship also is not simply an expression through song, through the raising of hands, through the closing of eyes, through, as some people say, dancing. Worship is not dependent on anything external and physical. You cannot tell if a person is worshiping rightly by external factors. You cannot tell if a person is worshiping falsely by external factors. It has no necessity upon the physical and outward expressions of life. Worship is not external. So it is the chief objective of the church. It has nothing to do with external factors. Not dependent or dictated by external factors. Worship is in fact a deep, deep moving of your spirit with God. Understand that. Worship is a deep moving of your spirit with God. And in those terms, many believers would be hard-pressed to say that they regularly worship. It can be said of believers that we are to be worshipful in all things. But church, what I want to communicate to you today is that it is quite a, 
another thing altogether, totally different thing to actually say we worship God. So what does it mean to worship? The questions we're going to answer, what does it mean to worship? What is worship? We're going to answer the question, how do we know if we are worshiping rightly? Can worship be created? Where does or where should our worship originate? And really, what fuels our worship? Those are all questions Mary's song of praise is going to answer for us this morning. Because she lays out, like I said, a very, very good example of genuine worship of God. She will show us in this song the state of worship, where worship originates within us, our action in worship, and she will show us the object in worship. Also the reason for worship, which will take the majority of our time this morning, where we'll spend most of our time. So she's going to lay before us in this uh, magnificent as it's come to be called. So lay before us the true and right way to worship God. So let's look there in Luke chapter 1. And we will start reading in verse 46. So remember the context. Just been encouraged by Elizabeth. Reassured. Confirmed by God. And this is what Mary does after hearing Elizabeth's words. Verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and returned to her home. The first thing that we must highlight and note Mary's song of praise or hymn of worship here is our state of worship. And really what I mean by that is our center of worship. Now, our origination and our center of worship is Christ, but where does worship come from within us? That's the question we want to ask. And she uses two words here that tell us where our worship comes from. She uses the, the word soul and the word spirit, verse 46 and 47. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit Rejoices in God my Savior. They are the same thing. She's communicating the same truth here. That it is the inner depths of her being that worship springs forth. That it's in her deep inner self, in her soul, in her spirit. It is in the inner self where worship is rendered unto God. That's taught by our Lord in John chapter 4. Again, verses 23 and 24, that discussion with the woman at the well, uh, the Samaritan woman, she's entering into that debate about location of worship between Jew and Gentiles. You say worship there, we say worship here. Which is it? And Jesus says it's neither. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in what? Spirit and in truth. That means that true and right worship generates from within us. And it is dependent on no external or physical circumstance. 
That means our worship of God isn't dictated by the music. The style of music, the pace of the music, nothing of the music. It's not dictated by lights. It's not dictated by the fog machine. It's not dictated by the building, by the decorations, by the scenery around us. No external circumstances have a bearing on our worship of God. They may distract our immature and unfocused hearts and minds, but they, those external things do not dictate how we worship God. They should not dictate how we worship God. Because our worshiping of God is a matter of the heart. Church, you need to hear that clearly. If we're going to be on the same page about this, if worshiping God is the culmination of our faith, if it's the chief objective of why we gather together, if it's the highest honor of our church, we want to be on the same page. You need to understand, church, that the worship of God is a matter of your heart. You cannot rightly worship God unless you rightly worship Him from your heart. And let me add, you cannot rightly worship God from the heart unless your heart is right with God. Only the saved heart, only the redeemed heart, only the clean heart, the repentant heart, the humble heart can worship God. That means a couple of things. That means only Christians worship God, right? If you're not a Christian, you render no worship to God. In fact, the opposite of that is true. If you know nothing of worship, you may not be a Christian. Because your heart, the depths of your soul, your inner self, according to Scripture, is dead in your trespasses and sins. You know nothing of what it means to be made alive and worship God. The other side of that is true though also. If you are a Christian, your heart still must be clean in your worship of God. We've all been there, haven't we? We've all experienced the ungodly hour before church where nothing seems to fit just right. Your hair doesn't work out like you're wanting it to work out. The kids are screaming. The kids are yelling. Breakfast was bad. You're having trouble communicating with your spouse. Anger wells up within your heart. The enemy uses everything he can to distract you on your way to the church building and you walk in and have to act like everything's okay. We've all been there. Let me tell you something though. Even Christians must take a moment to make their heart right with God before they worship. To ask for His peace, ask for His forgiveness, ask for repentance. Make things right between us, God, that I may worship You because worship is a matter of the heart. That is the only way to rightly worship God. That is worshiping God on His terms and not ours. God cares about the heart. This worship, I will say it, it may be expressed outwardly with physical and outward expressions, but our worship as Christians is not dependent on anything external. It is totally internal. Totally a matter of the heart. The second thing Mary highlights here is not just the state of our worship, where it originates, which is our soul, the inner depths of our heart, but also our action in worship. If worship is something that takes place on the inside, then what do we really do in worship? Because I have a hard time manifesting my spirit. <laughs> I have a hard time communicating things on the inside of me, trying to get them to come out. So what exactly are we to do? What is our action in worship if it is a matter of the heart? And Mary talks about her inner self, her soul and her spirit, doing two specific things 
that constitute and enable her worship. She uses the word magnify and rejoice. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Two totally different things. Totally different meanings. Totally different words. Let's look at the first one. To magnify the Lord. This is our action in worship. What does that mean? To magnify the Lord. Simply put, it means to lay the Lord before yourself. To in your heart actually behold the Lord. To meditate on Him. To dwell upon Him. You must come to an understanding, even a small understanding, of the magnificence of God in your heart. You must focus your heart and mind on His grandeur, on His majesty. Because all Christians, even new Christians, have some small understanding of the magnitude of God compared to themselves, right? And isn't that Repentance 101? God is in control and I am not. God is greater than I am. God is bigger than I am. God is awesome and I am not. God is holy and I am not. God is far beyond me, transcendent above me, and I am finite. So even some small understanding of the magnitude of God must be laid in your heart. That's your action. Lay Him before you. Behold Him in your mind. Behold Him in the depths of your spirit. Meditate. Dwell on the wonder of His person, on who He is as our God. Come to the realization in the depths of your souls of the grandeur, of the majesty, of the holiness and magnitude of God. That is our action in worship. Lay before you the majesty of the Almighty God. Dwell on who it is that you get to behold and worship and have a relationship with. Second thing that Mary talks about in our action in worship that she highlights is rejoicing. Again, the simplest way to put that is to enjoy and celebrate the person of God. That's what it means to rejoice in God. Enjoy Him. Celebrate Him. That is what happens naturally when you magnify Him in your heart. When you focus your soul on Him, you begin to enjoy Him and celebrate Him in the depths of your soul. So our worship, just to be clear, our worship should be a celebration and an enjoyment of the person and the presence of God in the depths of our souls. That, church, that is the unending desire and habit of all Christians. For that is how we will spend our eternity celebrating and enjoying and magnifying the person and presence of God. I would add that this can also be done in difficult times, can't it? In the midst of heartache, God can be worshipped. You look at Job, right? The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Regardless of what happens to me, I'm still going to serve the Lord. Regardless of what comes upon me, I'm still going to worship the Lord. Worshiping God can still take place in the midst of heartache as you enjoy Him as a comforter. As you enjoy Him as the giver of peace. As you enjoy Him as He who provides rest. As you enjoy Him as the compassionate God. In all of those ways, that is worshiping God. Even in the midst of difficulty. 
this church, this is at the heart of Christianity, this kind of worship. Celebrating, enjoying, magnifying our great God. That is rejoicing in God. That is what we are to do. You need to examine the way you worship. What you think and define worship to be. We as a church need to realize that true worship of God takes place in the depths of our heart and it all centers and focuses upon Him. That's the third thing we see this morning where we're going to spend the rest of our time. The object of worship that Mary highlights here. And we'll also see the reason we worship here in this point also. Mary's worship is directed in verses 46 and 47 to the Lord and to God her Savior. So it must be explicitly stated, we only worship God. We don't worship the church. We don't worship the Bible. We don't worship each other. We don't worship the pastor's vision or mission statement. We only worship God. He is our only focus. There are strong implications to that, right? First one being, church is not about us. We don't gather here together to tickle our fancy, to appease our hearts, our tastes, our desires. We gather here as the church, as the body, to worship, glorify our God. And the minute a church forgets that, they begin to descend down a steep and dark path leading only to destruction and despair. Mary uses two titles here that refer only to God. She uses the title Lord and she uses the title Savior. Lord means the ruler of all things. All supreme being. The God over creation. The sovereign, almighty God of the universe. He is the Lord. I worship the Lord. That, that indicates that He is worthy of worship. We worship Him because He's the one worthy of worship. He's in fact entitled to our worship. Whether or not you believe in Him, He is still entitled to all the worship of the world. He is the Lord. But she also says, I worship my Savior. The One who secures redemption for us. And if Lord indicates His entitlement to worship, Savior indicates what He earned for our worship. Whether you believe in God or not, He's worthy to be worshipped. But when He is your Savior, you are moved to worship Him. Luke actually only uses that title Savior twice in his Gospel. Once here, referring to God from Mary's mouth. And the second time in chapter 2, verse 11, when the angel says, uh, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. He uses them both for God and for Jesus interchangeably because they are the same person we worship our lord and savior jesus christ we make no mistake about it we worship our god of creation he is the focus when we gather together oh don't you long to be a part of a church that when they say we're going to gather at this time to worship they shut the doors lock them and everything is focused upon christ not one thing is focused upon themselves now when they say we gather together worship that whole hour is focused 100 percent on christ that is worship, beholding Him before us. We also see here the importance of worshiping in truth. Again, John chapter 4, God is spirit and is to be worshipped in spirit and truth. 
here we see the importance of worshiping in truth because we must know who it is that we worship. We must not fashion or create in our own imagination our own definition of God. We must worship the right true God. We must study God's word so that we can rightly and truly worship the only true God. Mary's worship here from verses 48 down to 55, Mary's worship all originates from what she knows of God in Scripture. Mary knows her Bible, knows the, knows the Old Testament. This magnificent, this song of praise, it is literally covered with scriptural references. I would encourage you to grab a study Bible, grab a commentary, grab a reference Bible, and look at all the Old Testament scriptural references. Every line of her song has some Old Testament reference to it. We, couldn't, we wouldn't have time to spend all the time looking at them all. We're, in fact, we're just looking at the tip of the iceberg of Mary's song here. It is marvelous. She knows her Bible. She worships God according to what she knows true of God from Scripture. And she mentions five attributes here in the rest of this song. Five attributes, five characteristics of God that are the focus of her worship. Five ways that she magnifies and rejoices in the Lord. Each of them centered upon God, centered upon an action that He has taken, centered upon a characteristic of who He is. These are the reasons why she worships God. And I want to walk through them quickly with you this morning. The first one being verse 48. God is gracious. It's what she knows true of God. God is totally gracious. And, and really, hasn't He been gracious to us all? Don't we know that true as Christians also? Most well, certainly we do. But she mentions in verse 48 her humble estate. And she calls herself His servant. The same thing that she called herself in verse 38. Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. It means I'm the slave of God. I'm the slave of of the Lord. He's looked on my humble estate. And that humble estate means two things in Mary's mind. It means social and economic humility. She's deprived of wealth and possession and those kinds of things. Socially, economically, she's humble. It also communicates her state before God. I'm humble before the Lord. Here, in verse 48, Mary admits her complete unworthiness to be before God. To be used by God. Mary knows she's a sinner. Mary knows there's nothing in her that would attract God to look upon her. In fact, everything within all of us repels God from us. But God was gracious to her, wasn't He? Remember Mary, you've been favored with grace. God has shown you grace is what the angel said to her. She admits her unworthiness. She admits her deep humility before God and church herein lies God's show of divine grace to her that God would use Mary someone who is unworthy someone who is of humble estate someone who is a sinner like the rest of us that God would use Mary is purely a sign of his grace it's as if Mary is saying I'm, I'm nothing before God I'm nothing before him but he is looked at me and because He has looked at me, because what He is doing in me, all will know that I am blessed. God has done such wondrous, such amazing, such stunning, such transformative things in my life that all will know the scope of my blessing. No other woman has ever had such a privilege as this. And even we, church, 
even we, we're blessed by our gracious God who uses unexpected, unworthy people to accomplish His purposes. Here, He uses an unworthy sinner chosen for a world-changing task. That is pure grace. Mary knew this was the true heart of God. Remember, she knew her Old Testament, knew her Bible. She knew this was the heart of God, that He loves to take unworthy people and lavish His graces on them and use them for His glorious purposes. Doesn't that alone well up worship within our hearts? You and I should be eternally grateful that God takes unworthy people and shows them grace. Mary knew that was the heart of God because she knew the story of Abraham, right? God called Abraham, who was a pagan idol worshiper, and said, I'm choosing you. I will be your God. I will make from you a great nation, and through you I will bless all the nations of the earth through your offspring. Mary would have known about Moses, right? A coward, stutterer, didn't want to speak in public. And God said, I'm going to use you, Moses, to stand before Pharaoh and then lead my people, Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses says, no way, God. Not happening. God says, don't worry, I'm going to be with you. Talk about David. Right? Who not only after he was chosen by God was an adulterer, but before that was a shepherd. Lowly, scrawny little boy, the youngest runt of his family. And God says, I'm going to choose you to be the king of Israel. I'm going to make you a great theologian. From your offspring will come the Christ who will sit on your throne forever. In fact, David, you're going to be a man after my own heart. God loves to take unworthy people, lavish His graces upon them, and use them for His glorious purposes. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26-29, talking to the Corinthian believers. He says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Look, there is no room for pride in the Christian life. And if you are a Christian here this morning, come to terms with it. You're a loser and God chose you out of the world. God isn't drawn to the rich and powerful like the world says He should be. God isn't drawn to the strong and influential. God isn't drawn to those who have money and fame. Money and fame actually have no standing in the court of God. God cares for those who have faith and come to Him sincerely. That's what causes Mary to worship and praise God because He gives undeserving grace. And that church should cause us to worship Him for His grace in our lives. That God descends to unworthy people and brings them salvation will be the theme of worship throughout eternity. That is magnifying and that is rejoicing in the grace of God. Laying before her heart God's abundant grace in her life. The second thing real quick in verse 49 that she talks about God, God is mighty. Verse 49, He who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is His name, she exclaims. And His might can be seen in Mary's reference to great things. Those great things that she's referring to is the fact that God is powerfully working in her to conceive a child 
in her virginity. And not just any child, remember, it's the Messiah. Christ, he powerfully worked within her and miraculously worked within her to give birth to the long-awaited Redeemer. And he did so in such a wondrously amazing way that this child would be born holy and divine. No wonder she exclaims at the end there, verse 49, holy is his name. He's different. He's other. He's unlike us. He's transcendent above us because who else could do such a thing as God? Who else could prove his might by causing a virgin to become pregnant? Who else could prove his might by sending a holy redeemer into the land to save people from their sinners? Who else could do these things? He is holy. There's none like him. He's transcendent above us all. That is the character of God working mightily in our lives in ways we can't even fathom. Isn't that true for us even today? Not just in Mary's time in our lives. Hadn't He worked mightily to to secure our salvation, our eternal salvation? Hadn't He worked mightily to allow us to live in a country where we can worship together freely like this? Worked mightily to allow us to be born in a place where the gospel is freely preached so that you and I could hear to be saved? And on and on and on down the list we can go. God has proved His might in our lives. The third thing Mary highlights in verse 50 is that God is merciful. In fact, this is a direct quote, almost word for word from Psalm 103, verse 17. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. That's something Mary's worshiping God for. That He's merciful. That phrase, fear Him, it means to respect and to revere Him. To know His holy justice and to fear His holy justice upon sin, but also to know that we are deserving of that holy justice. Only when you begin to realize the magnitude of your wretched sinfulness before an almighty holy God will you begin to understand the depth of mercy. Only when you realize how much even the smallest sin in your mind offends God, the God of the universe, will you begin to understand what mercy He has shown to us. He is merciful. And His mercy is for those who know His justice upon sin, know that they're rightly deserving of the just punishment of eternal eternity in hell, and yet who come to Him for help. There they find mercy. And such would be Mary's understanding of God's mercy as she knows the purpose of the Messiah. Right? The purpose of the Messiah was to extend God's mercy to all those who deserve hell. We come for the righteous, I came for the unrighteous. Mary changes her focus here in this song. She focuses on others, God's mercy from generation to generation. We actually worship God because His mercy will extend to other generations because of the child being born, because we have a common salvation with those from the past, the present, and the future. We worship God because He's merciful, and that mercy is not temporary, it's timeless. Sometimes I think we need to pause and remember that Christ coming into the world wasn't to erase the outcast, wasn't to get rid of the needy or the lowly, it wasn't to get rid of the guilty. Christ coming into the world was to show salvation and mercy for all those 
who are deserving of just condemnation. The fourth thing, verses 51, 52, and 53, she worships God for is that God is strong. He has shown strength with his arm, she says. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. He's exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. And this is a different kind of strength than what you and I think of when we think of the word strength or strong. This is something only God can be responsible for. Because the proud stand no chance against God, do they? He is strong enough to scatter even the most inner thoughts of their heart. To send them into confusion, send them into panic, and to send them into chaos. In fact, there is no human attitude that falls more severely under God's judgment than unbelief and pride. In fact, pride is even a form of unbelief, causing humanity to forget about God and to trust in self. And the rich and the powerful are inclined to do that. Mary also says he's strong enough to bring down the mighty from their throne. Even those who possess the most power and the most authority here on earth are absolutely no match for God. He places kings and he removes kings, right? We can talk about Saul, can't we? First king of Israel, God anointed as king. Saul turns his back on God, God removes him. We can talk about the great, the mighty, the powerful King Nebuchadnezzar. God made made to eat grass like a cow. We can talk about the mighty Pharaoh of Egypt. God brought down without one drop of sweat coming off of his brow. God places kings and God removes kings as He desires. There is none who are, who are matched to God's strength. No one can stand against God. And isn't that great comfort for us? We belong to the One who can never be taken off His throne. The One that no one stands a chance against. And even if this government of ours comes down upon our shoulders, God is still stronger. So instead, God exalts those of humble estate. Those who come to Him in humility, God exalts them. He feeds the hungry, those who are dependent upon them. He sends away the rich, those who are dependent upon themselves. And that is totally the opposite of how the world thinks. In fact, so many people think they are deserving of grace, right? Deserving of mercy. God instead looks upon the lowly, looks upon the humble in heart, and not to the rich and the powerful. That is such a direct reflection of Mary's pregnancy. That, that statement is so personal for Mary. Messiah is not going to be born in a palace to the kings and queens, is he? He would not enter the world via a rich, aristocratic family. He would not be born to the powerful and the influential. Instead, God looked on the humble estate of Mary, a young teenage virgin, virgin and a poor carpenter and he gave them the tremendous blessing of raising the long-awaited Christ. The wealth and the prestige of the powerful people of this world, they, man, they mean nothing before God. You cannot buy His favor. You cannot earn His love. And your position here on earth does not warrant Him using you for anything. God looks at the heart. And those who are humble before Him will find that He is quick to exalt them. 
the fifth thing that Mary highlights is in verses 54 and 55. God is faithful. He has helped His servant Israel, she cries out, in remembrance of His mercy. He has spoke to our fathers as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The help that she's referring to is the child she's going to give birth to, the Messiah. That He remembers His mercy and He has finally sent the Deliverer. He's remembering His promises that He made long ago. He's sending the Redeemer. And this is surely a cause for worship for Mary and for all who understand the significance of her pregnancy. All who understand what it means that the Lord is here, that Christ has come to the world because this child is going to set the captive free. He's going to heal the sick. He's going to take the wrath of sin for the repentance and He's going to provide eternal salvation for those who come to Him in faith. God is faithful to provide salvation. Does not all this apply to us also? Isn't everything that Mary's singing about here praising God about here, isn't it also true for us today to worship God in such a way? I mean, has God not been gracious to us in sending Jesus to the cross for our sins? Has God not proven His might in providing a way of eternal forgiveness for you and I? Has God not been merciful to us by providing salvation instead of punishment? Has God not shown Himself strong to us by canceling the record of debt that stood against us? Has God not proven His faithfulness to us by fulfilling His promises to bless all the nations of the earth through Christ and by holding us for all eternity just as He promised us? Man, most certainly He has. He's proven Himself gracious, mighty, merciful, strong, and faithful. We know that to be true of God. For all Christians, we know these things to be true firsthand because of the great salvation that He's shown us. See, Mary here was celebrating and worshiping God for a salvation that was coming into the world through Christ. But today, you and I, we celebrate and we worship God for a salvation that has already come through Christ for us. These things are still true of God today, still true of you and I today. And this song of praise, it can be understood with reference to Mary, but also. In the figures of speech, it can speak to to and, and for anyone who has experienced God's extraordinary deliverance today. This hymn of praise is it's not for the proud, it's for the powerless. Not for the worthy, but for the unworthy, the unexpected recipients of grace. It's not for people who are able to save themselves, it's for those who have repented and experience divine intervention in their soul. This hymn of praise that Mary pins and sings is for those who have faith in God leading to salvation. Only for those who are born again. It's not a song for the unbelieving. Only a song for the believing. For those who have salvation in Christ, this song should really mirror our hearts. Worshiping God, magnifying and rejoicing in God in the depths of our being for the grace, for the might, the mercy, the strength, and the faithfulness that He has shown to us even today. 
Religions all over the world expect the low to ascend to the high, the sinner to become a saint to meet with God. Mary's magnificent here. It reverses the order. The high came to the low. God came to the sinner with compassion and with rescuing grace. And as a result, in the depths of our hearts, we must be inclined to glorious praise of the Almighty. Church, let us be a people undeterred by external factors, but beholding in our hearts the one true God, magnifying and rejoicing in the depths of our spirit who God really is and worshiping Him for His grace, His might, mercy, strength, and His faithfulness. This is true and genuine worship. And this is what churches, Christians must be marked by.